Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with CJI fellow Richard Norris on the current tough energy investment climate. But before we get into that, let's have a quick discussion with CJI fellow and energy security forum manager, Joe Kalnan, about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? Oh, I'm doing great, Kelly. Uh, now, uh, for this podcast, I'm also taking part in the interview with Richard. So I'll keep these stories shorter so that people don't get tired of me too quickly. Well, they better not, Joe, because we're kind of, as well as the energy transition, we want folks to know that over time, we're going to transition this podcast over to Joe. You know, keep a younger guy instead of a fossil like me at the controls. Well, that's going to happen gradually. What's in the news, Joe? In the news right now, I think uh, first we should talk about some current disputes in OPEC Plus and what it could mean for oil into 2024. So Bloomberg reported on Wednesday that a OPEC Plus meeting scheduled for this weekend has been delayed because of a lack of consensus among OPEC partners on oil production levels in 2024. This meeting was widely expected to announce new production cuts meant to support flagging oil prices uh, that uh, have declined in recent weeks and uh, are looking like they'll be again lower in 2024 with a... uh, some forecasters are saying now that there might actually be a uh, surplus of supply. Uh, the delayed meeting was has caused the Brent crude oil price to fall by around $2 today as the market adjusts its expectations for supply and demand. Uh, the disagreement is reportedly over the output quotas of Angola, Nigeria, and Congo in 2024. Last June, these countries were penalized by a quota reform that saw more of their production targets redistributed to the Gulf states Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Kuwait. The African members of OPEC have repeatedly missed production targets while Gulf capacity went underused. Uh, This was especially sharp in the last two years. And uh, as a result, This gave up market share to growth in non-OPEC oil producers like the United States, Guyana, Canada, and various others. Well, and like Russia, like even those sanctions, there's, I think a lot of this supply surplus is oil that isn't getting, it's, you know, they can't count it because they don't know where it is, but that's another story. Uh, The concept of further cuts from these already low quotas is difficult to explain except for these African countries, which so much of their current, their uh, balance of payments is required from the, you know, their energy producers. Um, Yeah. And that's where they get foreign cash and how they make loan payments. And it's led to some African OPEC members to actually increase rather than cut oil production. Um, It's clear that Nigeria, for example, produced 1.416 million barrels per day last month, well above its quota and certainly above any new quotas allocated by OPEC to support prices. African countries are desperate for a quick export revenue, Joe. The Gulf countries traditionally uh, think longer term about the value they're receiving from oil, from sales. Um, they're much more of a first in, last out, whereas it's uh, last in, first out with uh, the African countries with less developed economies. 
Saudi, Kuwait, the UAE, it's especially true as they modernize their economies with manufacturing and higher skilled services. We'd like to also underline the issue facing OPEC Plus. Um, though all the, cult, all the cartel members are oil exporters, that doesn't mean that their economic and political interests are always aligned. Although the, the OPEC uh, cartel has been around since the 60s, it's still fragile and it's broken down a number of times, especially when Saudi got fed up and decides to, to unilaterally affect the market. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I'd agree. There's been several times in history where Saudi Arabia decided that they aren't going to take the brunt of uh, oil price or oil, of oil production cuts. And lately, it seems like Saudi Arabia has been the leader in terms of cutting their own oil production uh, at their own expense. Meanwhile, many other OPEC producers uh, seem to, you know, uh, make noises toward uh, fulfilling their various obligations, but then exceed their targets. It's just kind of funny how some of these countries, you can really tell the quality of kind of their uh, their energy systems, because uh, many of these, the, the Gulf OPEC countries really do have a lot of control over how much oil they produce, whereas these countries in Africa, for example, Nigeria, often has very little control over how much oil is actually produced, because much of it gets, is, is stolen, you know, yeah. is, is stolen and then resold on international markets or else locally refined. It's uh, it's not a good situation when you don't have that institutional um, strength that's required to really play a, a, a part in um, a cartel like this because it, it does take a lot of organizational strength. I'll just before just as we close two things like our um, yours and my um, predictions for the price of crude are going to be drastically high. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, the um, the delta between where oil is kind of trading in that plus or minus $80 level is still really, really good for producers and especially low cost producers like the Persian Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia. So, you know, they can manage through this. It isn't just that maybe not, maybe, you know, I hate to sound like a, uh, no, just the, the giant profits that were being made are just less profits. Like there's still giant uh, earnings being con- uh, made by oil producers. So what else you got, Joe? Got to talk about the Canadian economy, don't we? Yes, we get to talk about the Canadian fall economic statement. Uh, so on Tuesday, Finance Minister Christian Freeland unveiled updates on Canada's budget, which reflect the new realities of spending in a high interest rate environment. Concerningly, interest payments on Canada's debt are forecast to rise from 7.7% of federal revenue federal revenue in 2023 to 10.4% in 2025. If Canada faces a recession in the coming years, those debt costs could rise even further as a percentage of revenues or as a percentage of GDPs, whichever one you prefer to use. Especially, this is especially if prolonged inflation forces Canada's central bank to maintain high interest rates. Because of this, there were not any big new spending announcements. This isn't to say that spending won't be higher. We can look forward to another $20 billion in spending over the next six years, over and above the March budget. But most of this will be for pre-existing programs. This fall economic statement came with a promise to bring deficits down to 1% of GDP by 2026-27. This new, quote, fiscal anchor 
is a target which is set for after the 2025 federal election and is meant to assay concerns that Canada's loose fiscal regime will continue to drive inflation. It's, it's important to note that nothing was set aside in this uh, statement to uh, for pharmacare, the central plank of the, the NDP Liberal Coalition. If the Liberals re- renege on their promise, we could see an early election. I don't think that's going to happen, though. I watched Singh last night on on uh, CPAC, and uh, he's you know he's treading water here. They they can't afford an election. Something else we should note is new clarity on carbon capture and storage investment tax credits. During the economic statement, Freeland announced that legislation for these tax credits will be introduced in the coming weeks. The shape of this legislation will give more clarity on eligibility and benefit of these credits. Um, also, Joe, something that I noticed was the uh, the and the noise around what gets leaked is it sounds like maybe that the that the uh, incentives for CCS that involve uh, or other uh, investments by Aboriginals will not dis- not exclude oil and gas. There's noise about that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's important to note too. Um, billions of dollars, primarily in Alberta, are waiting is awaiting word on what these credits will look like after before committing to the projects. And this includes the pa- plans for the Pathways Alliance carbon capture and storage trunk line and hub. There's still a lot of work to do, and Alberta needs to come to the table as well with their plans for uh, amount of uh, tax relief and or investment in the in the uh, pathways uh, in the CCS plan. But we're moving forward slowly. Um, Joe, one thing you didn't mention too that I think that she mentioned, and I, I we, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, but seven billion dollars associated with credits, tax, uh, carbon credits, and contracts for different possibilities, eh? Mm-hmm. Um, was in the statement, and I don't understand enough about that, but it's something we should probably explore is these uh, contracts for difference as we see um, the investments go into um, uh, CCS and or other greening methodologies trying to at least stay in the same lane as the IRA in the United States. I mean, um, something that, and, and I've, 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 had an email conversation with one of our supporters about this something that really strikes me about like the idea of these car contracts for difference and uh, the the concept of being able to hold a future government to a certain carbon taxation scheme um i'm i think it's a little bit suspect constitutionally you know the idea that you can tie the hands of a future government to a certain policy yeah, uh, you can you can for sure make it more difficult for a future government to change a policy, but that that'll be based on political calculations. Whether you can force a future government to keep with a certain uh, scheme of taxation or of uh, revenue, um, that is a big question that I think might end up in the courts if if this end up ends up uh, proceeding. Okay, let's move on. For sure. We'll uh, move on to our interview now. But first, I'd just like to uh, remind our listeners in general that you should subscribe to our Energy Security Forum newsletter to get these stories and more directly into your inbox every Wednesday. Completely free newsletter, uh, great stories, and uh, received many good reviews. So please subscribe. Great, Joe. Let's talk to Richard Norris. It's always fun. For today's episode, which we recorded on November 20, 2023, we're bringing back one of our early guests to provide an update on the current status of uh, 
well, a lot of things about energy and security and transitioning and budgets and and uh, friction in the markets. Really, really pleased to have join us today from Montreal, Dr. Richard Norris. Richard is a CGI fellow, energy expert and managing director at Pendranko Energy Advisors. He's a prolific commentator on energy and really a keystone of the CGI Energy Security Forum. Really glad to have you join Joe and I today, Richard. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Kelly. Nice to see you. You too. Um, you know, tomorrow the uh, federal government of Canada is going to put out its fall economic update. Uh, just kind of showing where things are in Canada fiscally and unfortunately monetarily <laughs> and what it's going to cost for Trudeau's spending plans in the future, which have been uh, fairly significant in the last several years and are going to be highlighted, I think, by soaring debt payments. Um, and uh, I think that the budget of the federal government is going to be, and I don't, they're not alone globally, uh, are going to be squeezed by such. Um, Let's start there, Richard. Yeah, um, we can't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I think one thing we can read across from looking at other countries is that the cost of debt is obviously increasing for everybody. Um, you know, I've I moved to Canada a couple of years ago from the UK, so I still follow what's happening in the UK and in in uh, Europe in general. And I think in some ways it gives us a, an an early warning as to what may be happening here. Um, the numbers in Canada are still quite small. Um, the interest payments on the debt, I think, were quoted as being 28 billion for the first eight months, which if we scale that up to a year and then take it back into pounds is about 26 billion pounds. The UK is going to be paying 94 billion pounds in terms of debt service. Now, it's got a slightly bigger uh, population, but what it doesn't have is much of an economy. Um, and the reason for that is that over the years, it's deindustrialized very heavily. And it's gone from being a net exporter of, um, of particularly of hydrocarbons, of oil and gas, to being a net importer. And when you combine those two things, um, becoming a, an importer of um, resources which are not denominated in your local currency, and you have a limited amount of manufacturing export potential other than just services, um, I've described it as a country that's going into a death spiral. Um, I hope it doesn't. But I think where, where we will see that in the UK, it will become manifest uh, in a weakening of the currency. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is if you're then still importing um, resources, particularly energy resources, um, and your currency is weakening, they become more and more expensive. So which is why I kind of refer to it as a spiral. I think from Canada's point of view, um, you know, as I say, the, the amounts are large by Canadian standards, but not uh, insurmountable. Um, one could argue that you know, if there is a, a change of administration in Canada uh, with the next general election, um, it might not be a great thing to the extent that the incoming administration would have to pick up the pieces and try and fix what has happened in the last uh, seven or eight years, which is, you know, an, an, an overspending uh, scenario. Um, on the other hand, we wouldn't necessarily want to be digging a deeper hole, so to speak, in terms of the, uh, the fiscal and monetary situation. And I think Canada has um, a very different position to the UK and to Europe in general, in that it is a resource-rich country, whether that be agriculture or um, mining or uh, oil and gas. And all of those can be used not only for the internal strength of the economy, but as export products. 
Um, now, one wouldn't want to, uh, an economy to be solely reliant on natural resources. One wants a manufacturing base as well, which Canada does have. It has fantastic universities. It has very strong engineering. So it has all the basis for being able to, to climb out of this. Um, as I say, I'm much more optimistic about uh, Canada than I am about Europe. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that the, um, the, I guess the size of the economies is relative, is, is, uh, would have to bear into that. But Joe, did you have anything to add to what Richard said? Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting the the differences in uh, how the UK economy is structured, and especially, you know, like UK, if you look at some economic history, it was the location that the Industrial Revolution started. So it was originally, you know, the center of global industrial production for like, I, I don't know, like 120 years until the United States took that mantle away from it. And now China's taken that mantle away from the United States. But, uh, you know, we, we can we can save that for another discussion. But then you have kind of these uh, financial services becoming kind of the central part of the UK economy. But I think that, you know, a financial service based economy, it's it's uh, it's riskier than uh, than you'd think, because people can move around fairly easily, especially the high skilled financial services people. They don't need to stay in the city of London. Just kind of a um, an interesting, you know, uh, comparison of, of economies where Canada, you know, are, we have we have certain advantages. And one of those advantages is the fact that we have a lot of oil, we have a lot of minerals, we have a lot of the, all these resources. And you can't just shift those around from place to place because they're geographically concentrated. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at, right, Richard? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. And, you know, even the, you know, when you look at the US economy, it appears to be absolutely humming along. But but in terms of the stock market, it's it's driven by a very small handful of very large tech companies. And, you know, I, as much as I admire what they do, and, and sometimes very terrified by what they do, there is an element of those being luxury products. And whilst everybody has a large amount of disposable income, whether that comes from having a, a very cheap uh, energy over many decades, or whether it's through printing money, there's a lot of disposable income. So people can pay for subscription services and buy new shiny gadgets. There will come a point where um, the, the, the addressable market for those companies actually declines because people are spending more and more money on energy if we get the energy transition wrong and energy uh, costs continue going up. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's almost an inverse correlation and this is clearly not investing advice, but I think one can see a, an inverse correlation between the cost of energy and the ability for economies to support the slightly unnecessary, but very nice to have uh, things which are typically um, currently the in the technology space. Richard, I, you know, I, I, hearkening back to your comment about if there is a change of leadership in, at the federal level in Canada, you know, the Conservatives would certainly cut spending. That's they would that would be a given. Um, but there's other concerns. I, I, I um, the capital required to Matt to um, make those a lot of those uh, resources exportable. Um, I, I read yesterday where the in a in terms of tax treatment overall. Canada ranks pretty good, actually, in the OECD. That was, you know, in, when you put all together, put the taxes all together, as you know, consumption taxes, income taxes, corporate taxes. Um, where do you see? Could you do you have a crystal ball about uh, taxation or and or income, uh, uh, new spending in Canada and foreign direct investment? And do you have any ideas of what where you think? Because I think that, you know, the the 
having resources is great, but you have to have capital to to make them into ca into cash flow. Yeah, I I think that's that's absolutely correct. And I I don't have a crystal ball, but it, you you do get some indications of what is happening and um and I, I think the taxation is almost a i wouldn't call it a red herring but companies and investors can deal with taxation what they can't deal with is instability and uncertainty uh i spent 10 years of my career doing equity investing uh, in energy projects in africa and contrary to what people might think some of the african countries like nigeria have very very stable uh, petroleum tax regimes for example so we may not like them you know angola has a, a petroleum tax of about 85 percent but if you know what it is and you know what it's going to be you can you can make informed decisions and i think the problem um that a lot of western countries have and i think this is not not specific to canada is that energy projects require almost a multi-decade time frame um and, and certainly in terms of energy policy for a country and individual projects and if you find that there is some major uncertainty on uh, the fiscal terms, whether that is um, in the US at the moment, for example, so one of the wind projects that was cancelled, one of the reasons cited was an uncertainty on what subsidies would actually be coming out of the IRA. Um, they, they they knew there would be some, but they didn't know what they were, so they couldn't plan around it. And about a year ago, I was I was working with a client, which was a very large family office based in the US looking at various upstream investment projects and they chose to look at one in brazil over one in canada because of political risk which probably goes a long way to answering your question uh, yeah that's exactly where i was going because it's it's uh, uh that, that's joe and i hear this all the time and people we talk to about energy security and and uh it's almost like a, a it's come to a grinding halt in canada because of regulatory and, and both environmental concerns and rolling up uh, EDI, ESG, and uh, all of these things that are interesting and important, but not nearly the driver of uh, investment. And I think that, you know, a change in government might see a, a change in that. Joe, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, specifically how the political risk interacts with the Canadian system. I think we'll get some hints tomorrow, but then throughout the rest of the year, we'll get some idea on what sort of supports the Canadian federal government is planning to provide for carbon capture and storage, uh, which is extremely relevant to oil and gas here in uh, Canada, in Western Canada, uh, because that'll, um, you know, provide most of the impetus for how we stack up in comparison to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which has very substantial supports for carbon capture and storage. Uh, so uh, that sort of risk where you have uh, many companies waiting with bated breath about what sort of announcement will come out tomorrow. And of course, you know, by the time this podcast has come out, it'll uh, have already entered into the news stream. So we're kind of operating from a position of uncertainty about what this is going to look like right now. And I don't know how many billions of dollars or investment are in question there. Well, you're right, Joe, and you know, we can just let our listeners know that from some of our inside information, from some of our supporters and people I know in the government, like this is coming here in the next little while. I think some of it is waiting for the great get together of all of those of the conference of the parties and whatever in, in Dubai. But um, yeah, and it, it, I know that the it's sort of, it's almost like a game of chicken, it seems like between the federal government, the 
provincial government of Alberta and the big operators about for more specifically the the um, CCS in Alberta. So it's interesting to see what happens in the next couple of days. I, I was it. I was disappointed yesterday. Even in uh, I saw. I, I'm sure you two saw the um, the memorandum and the uh, rollout of the press release after the conference in uh, San Francisco Economic Conference on Friday, Saturday. Um, how Canada was. Uh, it speaks to what we're saying. What you're saying, Richard, about investment. How Canada seemed to be on the outside of the um, discussion regarding go forward plans in the Asia Pacific, and and at the same time, uh, Minister Ning Ng or whatever I can't remember her portfolio said we're going to continue to push a progressive uh, agenda in these meetings. And I sorry, I'm disappointed that, the, that those parts of the discussion that. To me, they aren't. It's not that they're irrelevant. That's not the point. But they aren't. They don't meet the test of what it takes to play in the game. Uh, yeah, they're they're kind of a luxury in a way. And other countries, other autocratic discussions that are, uh, or countries that are that have autocratic leadership, they they must get tired of hearing this. Hmm. I think Richard, four or five years ago, um, you could get win a lot of um support and have a lot of soft power by being a leader in the um, progressive energy transition esg movement and i think uh the, the the overton window has changed we know it has you know energy security has come to the fore for many countries and it's unfortunate in many ways that canada ought to be and could be and, and may well be at one some point an energy superpower you know, we, we have the resources for that. The fact is we're not using them at the moment, which is uh, a, a choice that comes from the federal level to a large extent. Um, but what that does is, ironically, it undermines the position and the power of the federal government to influence um, other nations abroad. Um, you know, it, it's it's almost a self-defeating policy. If I could just come back to one of the points that you, you made in that, um, you know, we Federal policy is, is an interesting point. One of the things we're seeing in the US and to a lesser extent in Europe is that um, investments are being um, made more problematic, not necessarily through legislation, but through regulation. And particularly in the US, the, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency um, has gone to very large, uh, largely overstepped its mandate, uh, as it's, I'd say overstepped by some people's views. Other people might think they're doing exactly the right thing. But there are um, enough regulations, and I think we've seen this in Canada um, with the constitutional, uh, the Supreme Court just striking down some of the overreach uh, on the environmental side. And that's a difficult one to manage because it's not regulated in the same way. So I think it's one thing to watch for from an investment perspective is not just the legislation, which can change with different administrations, but also how the regulatory authorities are managed through those processes as well. Very much. Yeah, very true. Joe? That's something that we talked about quite a bit uh, in my uh, master's program, public policy, was, you know, the issue of regulatory autonomy and the fact that there's such a huge mess of uh, different rules and regulations that need to be followed that nobody really has a full picture of even you know i don't think there's any single person in canada that can give a full uh, understanding of how 
all the regulations interact. And, uh, you know, policymakers tend not to try to uh, go into the morass of sorting out all these regulations and figuring out which ones are necessary and which ones aren't. Instead, they tend to just pile on more regulations uh, to try to fill in whatever gaps they think exist there when many of these gaps are, in fact, caused by uh, regulations that are kind of pulling in one direction and pushing in the other. Joe, I, I, that was really brought to the fore the other night at that dinner we had when, when the oil and gas operator told us, and this isn't just federal government, had the, the stymied, uh, oper- like the, when something a little bit wrong goes wrong in the, in the drilling of a well, and um, from an uh, environmental standpoint, um, I was astounded and shocked at the level of how it ground everything to a halt for days and weeks. Um, and you, we've seen it with the TMX and the uh, uh, coastal gas link as well. So, mm-hmm. Joe, what was the what, what what did you want to talk about next? Talking about uh, policy uncertainty and all of these issues, we could chat a little bit about the uh, recent decision by the Trudeau government to um, uh, provide carbon tax relief, I suppose, if you could put it that way, to uh, people who heat their homes with fuel oil and uh, what that means for the carbon tax. So, Richard, do you want to start us off? Do you have any thoughts on uh, what this could mean for Canadian environmental and uh, energy policy? I'll, I'll probably sidestep the the political <laughs> question about what was, what was driving this, but... Um, I think for me, the most interesting thing about the whole carbon tax is this notion that it has been sold as a tax that will return as much money as it raises. And I mean, by some accounts, it will it will provide more money than it's raised, which seems a bit odd, um, but that it is it essentially going to be revenue neutral. And the thing that's odd about that is that normally when you put in taxes, you are doing so to try and change behavior. You provide subsidies if you want to encourage things. Uh, For example, if you want to encourage the uptake of EVs or solar panels, you subsidize them. It might be argued that a better thing to do would be to subsidize public transport. But if you want some people to stop or change or reduce their behavior, good examples being alcohol or tobacco, you put taxes on those products, you make them more expensive, and you you try and dissuade people from from pursuing those, those, those avenues. So if you have a carbon tax where you tax people, you create a wedge of government, um, which has an obvious cost to it, who then redistribute the money. Um, and most most people will get checks which are larger than the tax they paid. That is the claim. I do not see how that is going to change people's behavior. Um, it seems to be uh, just, just the, the wrong approach. Um, what it is doing is that uh, people who have higher carbon footprints, which generally are, are wealthier people, will pay more tax and they will receive probably no rebates, whereas poorer people who use less carbon will get more rebates. So there is a distribution um, which makes sense in some ways um, from wealthy to poor. And, and that is good because many of the other um, ideas we, that have been had, for example, the subsidies for EVs and solar panels, tends to work the other way around. Everybody uh, comes out of general taxation, so everybody pays it. And generally speaking, wealthier people benefit from it, um, which is obviously not a very sustainable approach to um, to, to behavioral change. No, it's it's a, yeah, I don't, I, I can't understand the political calculus whatsoever. That, that's just funny. I, I think I'm going to have to slightly disagree. As someone who, uh, you know, is is not like by any means, you know, uh, uh, an incredibly high income bracket person, 
but I, I do own a truck and, uh, you know, I, I drive it around I mean, you know, whenever I go to the gas station to fill up, I'm always shocked by how much I'm paying. Uh, and then, you know, so, uh, that, that kind of does provide an incentive for me when I go to, to go to the gas station less as in to walk around more or bike more or whatever, and, uh, try to use my truck less. And then, you know, when I get the, uh, the check from the government, I think usually, um, I mean, I, I haven't done the full calculations because I think the, the, the cost of the carbon tax is embedded in everything. So I'd have to really look into how much I'm paying versus how much I'm, I'm getting from the government. I have a feeling that I'm probably paying more than I'm getting from the government. I can guarantee you you are. Yeah, yeah. I think in terms of purely the carbon tax I'm paying on gasoline, which I think is the most visible part of the carbon tax for sure, that people are most aware of and can conceive of most easily. Uh, I think I'm still getting a bit more from back from the government than I'm paying, but I, I, uh, I'd have to do the full math to make sure of that. But, uh, you know, it, it's not a huge incentive, but it is a slight incentive for me to drive less. Yeah, we can continue on that discussion, but I, let's move on to um, the, you, you uh, laid out a, a discussion about uh, strategies of uh, profit. Most <laughs> seems like an oxymoron. Um, Enal set to focus on most profitable green projects in a new strategy. Joe, set the stage for who Enal is, and uh, what's your comment on on uh, this topic? Well, Enel is a uh, Italian uh, state-owned uh, oil and gas company, or at least historically it was an oil and gas company. It's become more of a across-the-board energy company lately. I think it was established uh, during the uh, 70s oil shock in order to, uh, you know, more more firmly establish Italy in the global oil system because they were basically scrambling for oil like everybody else in Europe. And uh, but lately, they've uh, like many other European energy companies, they've been uh, transferring more of their focus to renewables, uh, especially post COVID when uh, there was just a general concept that the entire of Europe would be very quickly moving to renewables. However, uh, recently, under the government of Georgia Maloney, since NL is a state owned company, uh, the uh, Italian prime minister has control over who runs it. The uh, new leader, and I, I'd have to look up his name, uh, is far less bullish on renewables, far more within kind of the, the scope of the new Italian government. Uh, so a bit more, um, I suppose, uh, you would call it, prag some people could call it pragmatic, other people might call it more, you know, right wing or more, uh, you know, associated with that sort of thing. And so they've, uh, they've decided to do a bit of a pivot away from renewables, uh, similar to some of the other major uh, energy companies in Europe, which have decided that renewables are not providing the sort of returns that their investors expect, and uh, that it, it would be a better idea to divert their spending elsewhere. But of course, I think Richard will have a lot of opinions on this as well. Yeah, I, I don't know anything specific about NL, but uh, you're right that it's there was a there was a trend, and I think the Danish uh, National Oil and Gas Corporation, uh, Dong, uh, is probably the the best known because they became Orsted, and in doing so, they, you know, the, the, there was a national as well as a corporate move to try and become very much more um, focused on renewables. It, it it was a little bit of smoke and mirrors because Orsted has a big business which provides um, energy through burning gas. It also has a big business which provides energy through burning biomass, which I think most people would agree, particularly in Europe, is, is not a particularly sustainable or green venture. But they certainly managed to present themselves. And of course, 
attracted a huge amount of money uh, in the sort of 2015, 2019 period. And their share price rose uh, because everybody wanted to be in. And it was a very easy time for investors because the companies were in, in very strong growth mode. If you invested, you could see your investment going up. Plus, you could wear your your badge, your green credentials and and say, well, we're, we're not doing nasty fossil fuels and oil and gas. And at the same time, for very similar reasons, the oil and gas companies actually had very poor returns. Um, there'd been massive cost inflation in the oil and gas industry. The oil price had stagnated at a quite a high level, admittedly, but it had stagnated. Um, so th there was a very easy win for institutional investors to say, hey, we're doing the right thing. And by the way, we're making money. That that bubble has has burst. Um, and we can we, we can see any of the uh, new energy stocks have come down, whether it's battery companies, um, electric vehicles, uh, wind companies, even uh, I think it's called Next Era, the the large solar corporation that made headlines when it became had a larger market uh, capitalization than Exxon in about 2019. Um, those curves have inverted, and Exxon has very much pulled away, of course. So th the, there's a, there's an element of falling out of favor, but there's very much a fundamental uh, element that these businesses are not producing the returns that people were expecting. Um, and I think we've seen that uh, with the, the low margins on the wind projects. Um, we, we've seen projects being cancelled left, right and centre. Um, in the US, there were two large projects, Ocean Wind in New Jersey, uh, one and two. I think they were like, it's supposed to be like over three gigawatts of power. Orsted walked away from those projects, uh, is probably on the hook for a $300 million penalty for walking away and got into a bit of a political spat with the local administration. And and one of the problems with this is that the way the business was being run was again these are long uh, long tenor projects and they were having to bid into the system um saying what they would expect for future power prices what would work for them so they could make their returns they weren't expecting particularly great returns they were always a low margin business but what happened was uh the supply chain costs increased and the financing uh, costs increased with with interest rates um the financing costs are particularly difficult because these companies have had cheap money for a very long time. And one of the elements of the work in you know, the weighted average cost of capital is they have a very large amount of debt. So the debt is very cheap. The equity is very cheap. The debt suddenly got a lot more expensive and it kind of threw the financials out. That combined with CapEx costs meant that the, uh, the power prices, which they had sort of baked into their um, contracts with the, the off takers, no longer worked for them so it's cheaper to walk away and pay 300 million dollars of penalty than it is to go ahead and and sell power at a loss so that tells you something about the the dynamics of, of the industry then within the industry particularly the offshore wind industry you've got the people who actually make the wind turbines who are finding that the the offshore environment is actually quite hostile i think there are a few oil and gas people who could probably have told them that if they'd listened um it's a very difficult place to operate um, you know, all of your materials break down very rapidly. There's a lot of maintenance. So there are now um, the the manufacturers, uh, uh, Gamsia, GE, and so on, who are facing um, claims of billions of dollars to uh, to to essentially honor the lifespan of the materials that they have supplied. And that you know, they're taking quite large write downs on those. So you've got the operating companies who are struggling with the costs and you've got the manufacturers who are struggling with the 
the longevity of their products. These are not insurmountable things, but I think the, the framework for me in all of that is that when you have very cheap capital, you projects that shouldn't get financed get financed. There's a distortion in the market. Now we saw it in the oil and gas industry in the shale plays. Um, companies were getting very cheap debt and very cheap equity for a long time. And so large acreage areas were getting drilled, which probably shouldn't have been when oil was at $50 a barrel. It probably needed to get drilled when oil was at 80 or $90 a barrel. But because they could lose money, you know, the market was distorted. That market distortion or an equivalent one, I think we're now seeing in the in the renewables industry. And that's what's popping the bubble. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's it all comes back in my mind to the uh, density of energy. You know, it, it, the, the absolute density of something you can produce to give you the result you need. And it's just lacking oftentimes in not not notwithstanding the necessity for other types of energy to back it up, like base load power for electricity, you know. There was a period there when the when the, those big storms in Europe or in the North Sea were happening a couple of weeks ago, and Great Britain was getting better than sixty percent of its its uh, uh, electrical energy from wind. But those are that's a, do you want those big storms tearing the coast apart too? <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> the connectivity between what's good and bad is oftentimes not good. I think that's you know there there are so many angles to why this is going to be difficult but the energy density is, is a very big one and it's, it's also probably the biggest argument as to why we're going to see a resurgence of nuclear power um you know it's we know that fossil fuels are finite we also know they're not going to run out in the next 10 years but if the world continues to decide that they're not the right thing to do and to be honest burning oil and gas is is, is pretty old tech and probably shouldn't be done um but that does leave us with you know, 1 billion people who are used to very high levels of energy consumption and 7 billion people who aspire to that. Um, energy energy usage is going to increase and it has to come as an affordable and reliable um, part of the equation. You know, the energy trilemma is often, you know, represented as three legs on a stool, all of equal value, um, reliability, affordability and sustainability. The reality is, is when you don't have energy, you go for affordability and reliability first and sustainability comes afterwards. And we've been in a very luxurious position for many years where we've had very reliable and very affordable energy because things were very well planned uh, in the past. The sustainability in terms of environmental impact has been questioned. And, uh, you know, that that's great. We can We can do better. But better may not be using very low energy density, wind and solar all over the place. There are places where it will work and where it will be useful. But to manage that for 8 billion people, it's very hard to see a future, whether it is a low carbon future or just a future of higher energy demand without a lot more nuclear. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my concern about uh, about nuclear and, you know, I'm saying this as someone who thinks that will be a significant role for nuclear for I mean, I think I think nuclear energy is going to be a huge source of energy for us for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. You know, like it's like we we can't just think about like oh, between now and twenty fifty, where are we going to do? So human civilization will continue on beyond that, barring some huge catastrophe. Uh, so it's like we we, we like this idea that oh, well, we're not going to build nuclear plants plants before twenty fifty. So what's the point? It's it's frankly ridiculous but in the current environment the thing that worries me is that the same sort of 
um, complications that are really hitting offshore wind are also hitting nuclear, which is, you know, regulated power prices uh, and, you know, uh, local regulators that really don't want to increase the price of power for consumers because, you know, they're, they're probably also getting huge political pressure to keep power prices down right now uh, because of inflation. And, uh, you know, the local politicians don't want to get voted out because of that. Uh, but then also, you know, increasing supply chain costs, which have been happening for nuclear as well, for sure. You know, increasing prices of steel and cement and all those sorts of things have been hitting nuclear and increasing prices for uranium as well. Now that Russia's cut off, that's a huge uh, issue. The new scale uh, set of small modular reactors was combined to make, I think it was going to be a 600 megawatt uh, combined power output uh, station. Uh, that was canceled recently in Utah, and uh, it was canceled for the same reasons that wind, offshore wind uh, in U.S. North Northeast was canceled. It's, uh, you know, um, rising interest rates because of all this inflation that was happening, and then also the inflation itself in the supply chain. So it's just kind of a double whammy where we're stuck in the middle there, where the supply chain costs haven't gone down yet because interest rates haven't killed people enough to cause a recession. But, uh, you know, the uh, interest rates are still very high. And so it just makes the project economics that much more difficult. Dirigist government is doing it. France in the 1970s and 80s, they made a political decision. This is what they were going to do. They were going to make essentially one uh, model of nuclear reactor and they were going to build it 70 or 80 times and in doing so they would keep the cost down they would keep it in budget and they were very successful south korea has done something similar um and and obviously china is, is rolling out a very large nuclear program um doing piecemeal uh, one-off reactors is very expensive um assuming that the private enterprises can can pay for it it seems to be a little bit utopic and i think the real danger is is that whilst we we take a view you know and i say we it could be any country it could be the uk it could be sweden it could be canada that we can't afford to do it at the moment well if we don't we may not be able to afford to do it later and that's the the long-term infrastructure spending that needs to happen um, to ensure that we have reliable energy in 20, 30, 40 years time. And unfortunately, it does not fit with the election cycle. It's, it's, a, very it's a very large problem for, for most countries. Politicians in the last couple of decades have really, really, I don't know what's the right term to use, but they've dropped the, the, whole, they've dropped the ball on, on long-term thinking whatsoever. I, it just, you're right, Richard. I'm reading a book about uh, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, J.P. Morgan around the turn of the century and just in the chapter where the United States government took over finishing the Panama Canal because <laughs> they were thinking about a hundred years. A hundred. Not, not five or ten. A hundred. Now it's so that that's where I want to kind of close this discussion is recently there's some real there's some real friction developing along around the canal because of uh, a drought and uh, ships are being you know there's a whole bunch of uh, things happening. Richard, have you been following that at all? Not particularly closely. I mean, I know it is happening. We saw it last summer in uh, Europe as well in the 
Danube and the Rhine and and uh, you know the, 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 this is this to me is uh, I'm, uh, this is the climate <laughs> we're in we're in parts of the world are in severe drought and facing it in my in my farmland in Saskatchewan we're in a long drought cycle and I don't see you know I, I don't see this changing in the near future so it, it again it adds it adds a lot of um, I, I, I'm a big user of the word friction but it is a friction is what causes things to stop happening and um, here we are again you guys comment yeah, I mean, I, I I hear you, but I I don't know the mechanics of the canal. But a canal that joins two oceans, you think there'd be plenty of water for it, but obviously it, it has to. You know, you have to cross some relief to get from one ocean to the other, so you need the water higher up. So that's really just an energy problem and the cost of energy. If you could pump water cheaply enough, you'd be able to solve that. Yeah, like pumped like like hydro, like pumped hydro pump storage hydro. It, it would be very expensive, but uh, it might be less expensive than shipping all the goods around the, the Cape Horn. Yeah, you know, you're right. There could be a, maybe they need a reservoir places from other places. I don't know, but it's just a, I've been reading this the last few days about the canal and you think about the amount of goods and services that go through there. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, something to certainly be more. Let's look into it, Joe, and maybe we'll have someone on to talk about it. Fellas, I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta be somewhere in fifteen minutes. So, Richard, what are you reading these days? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. Um, I've just been reading uh, the draft of my wife's uh, most recent book. So there you go. It's called The King of Montreal. She's a writer. Uh, not published yet, but uh, I'll plug it when it is. The, the King of Montreal. Is that referring to you, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> it's a historical, historical fiction. Okay, great to see you guys. Great to see you all. Okay, yep, take care. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.